Hi, this is Herb Kressel, and uh, today I'm joined uh, by Drs. Uh, Kevin King, Assistant Professor of Radiology at the University of Texas Southwestern, and Dr. Ron Pishak, Professor of Radiology at the University of Texas Southwestern. And these are two of the co-authors of a uh, very fascinating study performed as uh, part of the Dallas Heart Study entitled uh, Aortic Arch Pulse Wave Velocity Predicts White Matter Hyperintensity Volume Independent of Other Cardiovascular Risk Factors. And I know that's a mouthful, but I'm sure uh, you'll find this study and the results uh, of interest. So let me begin with you, uh, uh, Dr. King. Why uh, did you do this study? Why should aortic pulse wave velocity be related to changes in the brain, particularly those associated uh, with cognitive change? Sure. So the brain and uh, the kidneys are two organs that have very high resting blood flow, and so people have been very interested in how blood pressure pulsatility might damage these two organs over time. And with the brain in particular, there's been a lot more interest recently on how cardiovascular risk factors might damage the brain and end up leading to things like dementia in general or even Alzheimer's disease in specific. The pulse wave velocity work we did um, was really gathering from a lot of interesting data that had been performed already in the um, physiology literature using carotid femoral pulse wave velocity, but there are now techniques where we can use some of these same analyses on MRI, so as radiologists we can incorporate a more detailed physiological analysis to better predict which people are going to have a lot of transmission of pulsatility to the brain in our case, and as I mentioned before, a lot of people are also interested in how this might affect the kidneys. Those are really two primary end organs, but it's pulse wave velocity has been shown to have significance for predicting death, a whole range of outcomes. So I'll okay. probably speak specifically about the brain today, but it has a lot of implications. Good. Now, where did you actually choose to measure the pulse wave velocity, and why did you choose that site? Yeah, well, let me, let me add to that. It's just that we basically were using MRI, so we chose to look at the uh, aortic arch. And again, this is very standardized technique, as, as many of you are aware allows us to look at the ascending and descending aorta and specifically look at the pulse wave velocity in the aortic arch. And this is really uh, critical because it really focuses on the area of interest and some of the other techniques that are used for pulse wave velocity try to measure the entire aorta whereas most of the elastic uh, fibers in the aorta are, are actually in the proximal aorta. Okay, so just at first glance uh, the microvessels of the brain are a long ways off from the aortic arch and how does the pulse wave translate su at such a distance? Okay, I mean so obviously the, um, the heart is going to be pumping and all the pulsatility going to the brain is going to come from the heart and it's going to be modulated by everything in between the heart and the brain. And one of the most important areas that people like Mitchell have focused on that might be important for regulating transmission of that pulsatility is at places where you have interfaces, where you have one area that's really compliant, another area that's less compliant, and one area that's drawn a lot of interest is the aortic arch and the carotid that's coming off of it. So as Ron mentioned earlier, the aortic arch in a healthy state is very, very compliant and that translates into having very low impedance. And in a normal healthy person, 
the carotids have sort of a fixed stiffness or relatively less changing stiffness over the course of adult lifespan. So when you're healthy, you have a relatively uncompliant carotid and a relatively compliant aorta. So the place where that pulse, pulsatility is originating will actually dampen some of the pulsatility that's transferred to the brain. Uh, but with aging, you lose that. And so you lose this sort of protective mechanism. Right now, now what did you find in your study? And I know you used rather complex statistical methods to tease out these effects. So uh, perhaps you can tell us your key findings and also uh, try to convince us that the statistical hand-waving was actually <laughs> data mining. <laughs> well, so we tried to look at the analysis and somewhat of a sophisticated manner because when you're doing epidemiology research, the thing you're always running into is you'd like to be able to look at a cause and effect relationship and you really you can't entirely, but the best you can try to do is you try to adjust for things that might be causing you to see the end outcome that you're looking at. So in our case, one of the big critiques of looking at aortic pulse wave velocity or aortic stiffness is that it really produces an effect in relation to causing high blood pressure or that high blood pressure might cause the aorta to be stiff. So it's very easy to just do a correlation analysis and show that the pulse wave velocity in the aorta is highly correlated to our brain outcomes. But we really wanted to try to convince maybe more uh, readers that are thinking that it has more of like just an associated effect with other risk factors and actually say this might be part of a causal pathway by adjusting for other things that people might think is really causing the end organ disease. Okay, and what did you find? So we actually ended up very surprising to us the amount of effect we saw. We saw that yeah. the pulse wave velocity was the primary predictor of um, who ended up getting larger white matter hyperintensity volumes. So almost every other study that had been done so far, the primary predictor has been just blood pressure measurements. So systolic blood pressure or pulse pressure. Um, and they'll find other things, but usually they're much smaller in effect than blood pressure. And we found that the pulse wave velocity was more significant and perhaps just as important, the pulse pressure or the systolic blood pressures reported in the paper and the aortic stiffness measurement by pulse wave velocity both produced an independent effect. So it wasn't that hypertension caused a stiff aorta Okay. and that both of them together caused brain effects, both of them individually produced effects to increase white matter hyperintensity volume. So that sort of supports that it's doing something besides just causing high blood pressure. Right. And what is actually the importance of uh, white matter hyperintensity volume? So white matter hyperintensity volume, it's not really well understood. There's a lot of debate in the pathology literature about what it represents, but what we know is it's very closely tied to blood pressure it does in some fashion reflect the burden of microvascular disease in the brain. It doesn't go away. It's sort of a cumulative effect of microvascular damage to the brain. And in the neurology literature, there's been an increasing amount of attention to all of the factors that cause the brain to lose function with aging. So a lot of interest looking at amyloid hypotheses have not really produced um, a lot of changes or ways to prevent dementia, but researchers looking at things like white matter hyperintensities have shown that it may be a necessary hit to have some microvascular damage to go on and express clinically dementia. I see. So for us, it's very important for, yeah, for dementia. Yeah, we actually published an article this past year in radiology uh, that directly addressed the relationship between uh, white matter hyperintensities and cognitive decline, but it didn't look at the total volume. 
so it just looked more globally at the extent, but not, not quantitatively. So uh, it's a very, very interesting finding. Dr. Pishak, uh, uh, what technique did you actually use for the pulse wave velocity measurements in the aorta? And uh, do you think it's optimal? Some, uh, I think the reviewers uh, and the deputators noted that there was limited temporal resolution. And how might this have affected your results? And more importantly, uh, how uh, might one better optimize a technique in the future? Well, the first thing is it's important to remember that these uh, original measurements were done almost seven or eight years ago now. So that basically we had to work with the technology that we had available at that time. And again, uh, I think that um, if we had been, there's always this trade-off between temporal resolution in, in imaging and spatial resolution versus the time of the MRI scan. And so one has to try to, uh, as you know, adjust that as best we, you can, and that's what we tried to do at that time. I think it's, it's important to remember that the temporal resolution is one feature of this, but a very important feature of this measurement is we actually measure the length of the aortic arch, basically how far uh, the or uh, the distance over which this pulse wave is traveling, whereas in some of the other techniques you read about that use uh, uh, tonometry or ultrasound, one doesn't actually measure that. It, one estimates the length of the of the uh, travel of the pulse wave. So I think that the combination of that hopefully allowed us to use perhaps less than the optimal temporal resolution. Sure. However, I would I would agree that if we were going to do those studies today, we would do them with higher temporal resolution. Okay. You note that the uh, vascular impedance mismatch uh, of the pulse wave in the aorta and carotid serve a uh, protective uh, function and that this is lost uh, with aging and the pulse waves in the aorta and carotid as you get older and uh, more atherosclerotic the pulse waves match and this is the source of damage to the brain. What about actually trying to sort of get closer to the end organ of damage and measuring the pulse waves in the carotid artery. Uh, one would think that ultimately it's the magnitude and the duration of the uh, flow alterations. Sure, so there's been prior work using ultrasound to really look a lot at the carotid pulsatility. Um, using MRI, it becomes a little more challenging because pulse wave velocity, um, as you have a smaller vessel and a stiffer vessel, the pulse wave moves more quickly. So MRI, its biggest drawback is temporal resolution, as we were just discussing. So to get a technically, um, a very good technical exam in the carotids is much more difficult. And there really hasn't been a lot of work done so far on that. But as far as why it might not be as useful to measure the stiffness of the carotid, um, there's good data from the physiology literature that the stiffness of the carotid doesn't change as much with aging. So you wouldn't tend to see as much of a difference in the carotid, presumably with aging, as you do in the aorta. So it would increase our accuracy, but probably not as much. The biggest change with aging is actually happening in the aorta. But we would hope going forward, actually, I think that what you're asking is a very good question. It'd be very good to further characterize exactly what pulsatility is going to the brain. There's a lot of other areas in the intracranial vasculature that might also be important and how um, pulsatility is either transmitted away from the brain or to the brain. A lot of this is really unknown. It's still a very wide open field. Good. Uh, and uh, do you think you could use the same technique to look at damage to other end organs, other organs at risk, the kidneys or the heart? 
Yeah, certainly. We work with um, some renal doctors that are very interested in the effect that it might have on the kidneys. But again, with MRI, we have this very neat um, ability to choose where we want to measure stiffness. And so while impedance mismatching between the carotid and the aortic arch is very important for us, they might want to look at the impedance mismatch between the takeoff of the renal arteries. So for mm -hmm. them, it might have some added significance to look at the abdominal aorta, which is something that the wide field of pulse wave velocity among physiologists hasn't been able to do. Even though they have this great temporal resolution, unlike radiologists, they can't look at which area of the aorta they want to interrogate. Now, one last question. Uh, I know this is kind of a, an initial finding, but how do you see this actually being applied for treatment and management of patients, uh, either with, uh, who are at risk for cognitive decline or who have these abnormalities detected at an earlier age? So there's um, two schools of thought about how this might be used. One is, if you know that the aorta is stiff, then for a given peripheral blood pressure, that you know that the central blood pressure is probably higher. So one might be simply to adjust your blood pressure targets, that if you know if somebody has a stiff aorta, uh, 130 over 80 for them might actually mean that the central pressures are quite elevated. Mm -hmm. So it might, one, cause you to set different blood pressure targets. The other one is there's been some interest um, that's still sort of in its infancy about actually trying to use um, vasodilatory drugs that can cause the aorta to be less stiff. There is some component of muscle tone to aortic stiffness and directly treat the stiffness. Mm -hmm. Good, thank you. Well, thank you so much for a uh, really stimulating and exciting article, and I enjoyed the opportunity of chatting with you about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.